0: Hello and welcome to the Rising Clay podcast. I hope you are all well. My name is Cameron McPherson and I will be your host for today's episode. On today's episode, we will be chatting with Dr. Chris Kiefer. Chris is, among many things, he is a nuclear campaigner as part of Doctors for Nuclear. He's also an emergency physician in Ontario, Canada. And he's also the host of his own podcast, The Decouple Podcast, in which he assesses the energy sources used and employed throughout the, throughout the world um, and kind of talks to a lot of experts there um, with kind of nuclear focus, um, kind of basically talking about the future of our planet from an energy perspective. Um, So yeah, a lot of his work there did inspire uh, this this podcast. So you know, go check that out already if you've not. Uh, I really enjoyed today's episodes. I found it really engaging and insightful. You know, hearing Chris kind of demystify a lot of the a lot of the misconceptions that that surround nuclear. Um, So you know, I hope you've enjoyed it too. So so let's get into it. So here's my chat with Doctor Chris Kiefer. I remember you know talking to you at COP and how. I think the kind of whole avenue of nuclear is really like interesting and kind of obviously everyone's aware of it, but not everyone's aware of the kind of utilization potential of it. So, if you could maybe just give a bit of background of yourself and kind of how you got involved in the in the discourse of uh,
1: the climate emergency, um, I think that would be a good place to start. Sure, sure. <clears throat> yeah, so um, I'm Dr. Chris Key from an emergency physician uh, based in Toronto, uh, in Ontario, Canada. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting you at COP26. And how did I get into nuclear energy? I mean, if if you'd met me 10 years ago and told me, you know, what I would be up to spending a ridiculous amount of my time outside of my job on this file, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, I have a history in activism surrounding uh, indigenous and refugee healthcare, uh, labor struggles, that kind of thing. So very much a creature of the left, Uh, still am, uh, which some people might find strange um, because sometimes, you know, political valencies get attached to technologies, which is bizarre, but there you have it. Um, My son was born three years ago, and I feel like um, in this unique time in history, people ask themselves that question a lot around the around considering having kids or when they have a kid, you know, is this, is this a good idea, you know, and there's there's certainly a lot of people saying hey, don't have kids because of the climate emergency, et cetera. So something I wanted to inform myself about and, you know, with climate change, the more that you learn and the more you read about it, um, the more concerned that you get, the more alarmed that you get. Um, but I wasn't um, content with just being, you know, a bore at parties and sharing all of my my recent research in terms of how screwed we were. I wanted to really stay optimistic or at least stay solutions focused. Um, and so I, I applied i guess a couple things for my my medical training um in, in terms of how i how i saw the problem um so one is one is triage um and that's what we do and i guess you guys call it accident and emergency uh but in emergency medicine every day you know especially if there's uh you know a big a uh, big wreck or, uh, you know, a we call a mass casualty event, we don't really have school shootings here in Canada, but, um, you know, things of that order, you need to marshal all of the available resources you have um, to the greatest benefit um, of the greatest number of patients, and you have to make some split decisions um, and really optimize your, your resource utilization. Um, The other one, um, the other rubric that we are trained with uh, as doctors, I'd say in the last 20 years is uh, this rubric of evidence-based medicine, and it really involves um, gaining what we call critical appraisal skills, so learning how to read the scientific literature with a very skeptical eye. Um, And basing one's conclusion in quality evidence, um, not just sort of appeals to emotion or or other sort of tools that we see so much of in terms of the discourse around climate and solutions. Um, And this led me into uh, investigating solutions and really um, seeing what what has worked and and what has not been working um, in terms of this uh, generational challenge that we face um and you know coming from where i am here in ontario um i found that my own backyard um, actually has a world-class decarbonized electricity grid um and it was fascinating to me to learn that we'd done that with nuclear energy um so we used to have about 25 percent of our grid powered by coal Um, we achieved the greatest greenhouse gas reduction in north american history um, by replacing that coal generation with with nuclear energy um, we used to have 53 smog days a year in the city that I live. We now have zero. Um, so there's a bit of a lived experience. And I hadn't been aware of it at the time because I, I wasn't paying attention. Um, but I thought, hey, this this is an important thing. It, it certainly tweaked my interest. Um, and that's led me into this unusual journey of again, in a strange way fighting for the underdog, you know, all of my previous activism with indigenous people, refugees, it's always been about fighting with the underdog. It seems bizarre that an industry or a technology uh, can be an underdog, but nuclear energy is just so poorly understood. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I just found that there was a need to, to communicate on that. Um, and it was being done um, not very well by by the sector in the industry itself so in a strange, strangely enough you have you know a, a creature of the left um spending an inordinate amount of his time advocating for uh for a technology um which i think is really the keystone technology of of the climate response yeah no, definitely uh thanks
0: for that i think because most people would have a kind of general idea of nuclear has been this really big Kind of grotesque plant that takes a lot of space and time and is, is very dangerous. But I think what from my kind of brief research is the kind of future of nuclear is these uh, small modular reactors or SMRs. Would you be able to um, give a bit of background on these and how they could maybe um, they could maybe be used going forward?
1: Yeah, I mean, the aesthetics question is very interesting. Um, I actually was able to visit Hunterston B while I was uh, at Glasgow at the climate event. Um, and it is a big facility, it's a big building, right? It generates an obscene amount of power, right? If you were to, to try and generate that kind of power with any other source of electricity, the environmental impacts are, are enormous. Um, so nuclear energy is, is very dense and concentrated. It's also very clean. I mean, there's no air pollution coming out of Hunterston B. There's fields full of sheep grazing kind of right up to the plant boundary. Um, you know, the water is clean, the air is clean. It's it's an interesting place. You know, if you were to try and um, build the number of wind turbines to, to replace that reactor, we're talking about, geez, I think Hunterston B was about 1600 megawatts, right? We're talking about, you know, 800 uh, wind turbines right um and people tend to sort of see wind turbines as as melting into the natural environment but you have to remember each each wind turbine is a collection of steel concrete resins for the for the uh the uh the blades which are sourced from fossil fuels there's about in a in a 5 megawatt wind turbine these are the really big ones there's about 500 tons of steel in that structure right Two, 200 tons of concrete in the foundation um And so I think we really need to reconsider the aesthetics. And I've I've come to see, as strange as this sounds, nuclear plants as, as being not necessarily beautiful, but it's beautiful in terms of the energy density that you can generate so much power um, on such an, an incredibly small land footprint. Um, and you'll often see nature thriving right up to the borders of, of the nuclear power plant. We have a, a power plant um, in, uh, in California called Diablo Canyon. Um, and it's uh, you know, on a bay that has some of the most vibrant marine life uh, on the whole Pacific coast, uh, right, up, right up to, again, the, 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 where the water discharges from the plant. And of course, that's not uh, got any radioactivity in that water. So I think the aesthetics are something that we really need to think about and, and talk about a bit more. Uh, and challenge ourselves. Um, in terms of small small modular nuclear, um, certainly I think there's a, a role for it, particularly in smaller grids and remote areas, but the, the scale of decarbonization required, we're talking about electrifying everything, right? Uh, right now, uh, where you are, where I am, we use gas a lot for heating. Of course, almost all of our transportation needs are met by fossil fuels as well. We need to between double and triple the capacity of our electricity grids, right? These are historic accomplishments, right? When we we built out these electricity grids, enormous investments, um year over year over year. Um, and the scale required is gonna be we're gonna we're gonna need a lot more large power plants in order to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so nuclear really does work, I think, at, at every scale. But um I would push back on the premise that you know old nuclear or the nuclear that we have had up until now is is bad. There was definitely an unfortunate error made in the UK. Um, with the decision to go with these uh, uh graphite cooled uh, gas reactors it's a it's a really ingenious intelligent design but they can't be extended beyond about 40 or 50 years of life um, and so that nuclear fleet is is coming offline in the uk just because of engineering reasons um whereas you know the reactors chosen by say france or our reactors here in canada were able to refurbish them and keep them online for you know it's looking like in ontario 80 years. Um, and some, some plants are likely to go to hundred years in the states. So you're creating this, you know, very long-lived energy infrastructure. Um, we need to obviously get to decarbonization very quickly, but we need that decarbonization to be durable. And we have to we have to really make our 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 Excel spreadsheets and, and make some comparisons. And you know, a wind turbine has a 20-year lifespan. Every single wind turbine currently blowing in uh, in Scotland right now is going to have to get ripped out and replaced uh by 2042 right whereas you know you build one of these nuclear stations and it could be going until uh the next century um so anyway it's just a bit of food for thought in terms of um in terms of aesthetics and in terms of um assessing sort of what we have so far it's been very maligned the the existing technology um definitely there was a big problem in chernobyl with an old reactor design but the pressurized water designs that we have all over the world have performed remarkably well and displaced two gigatons of co2 every year that's one 25th of all of humanity's emissions every year is, is displaced by by our existing nuclear fleet which is performing very well
0: yeah yeah because i think especially in in scotland anyway, the like there's a big push for and, and quite like a a lot of, a lot of pride in, in, in our renewables but I think, like you're saying, they don't come without its cost, even in terms of the level of manufacturing. But um, one story we, we ran recently was that um, a big kind of seller of these um, wind turbines, as a, you know, it goes back to the community um, and it benefits kind quite locally, but they're not really receiving or the local communities aren't really receiving as much as, say, the people who, big energy companies who put these up. Is there any way to... Do you think maybe to end the fossil fuels um, reliance, should um, nuclear be offered a, a seat at the table next to renewables? Can they coexist?
1: Well, I mean, the, the situation with renewables is interesting, right? Um, Scotland, you're right, like you've installed a lot of wind capacity. Um, there's many days of the year when you are generating all of your electricity needs from from uh, from wind, but what happens on the days that you're not? Um, one of the days I was at at COP, um, Glasgow was 75% powered by nuclear energy that day. But now that Hunterson B is offline and if more nuclear goes offline, it's it's fossil fuels that fill in that gap. And, you know, I I traveled to Germany, which is really the place that spent more than any other country um, per capita on renewables. Um, When I was there, uh, it was not windy. um, It was not sunny. They were relying on coal and Russian gas and their emissions were terrible. Just like absolute bottom of the barrel, despite this historic investment, 550 billion euros. The sad reality is, is that, you know, weather dependent renewable technology, um, when it doesn't produce, it, it spares use, right? It's, it's a fossil fuel saver, it's not a replacer, right? So what you have in Germany is um, two parallel grids. You have a clean grid, And it works when it works. And unfortunately, that's not even the majority of the time. And then you have a dirty grid that has to fire up and meet peak demand. So it's very expensive. You have two times the capacity. You have two parallel generation systems. It costs a lot of money. And you're also driving that fossil fuel uh, fleet in a very kind of stop and go traffic manner where you have to step on the gas. You know, the the clouds came over top and and now the the power is down from there. And you have to ramp up these coal plants, which you've kept burning anyway, because you need to maintain a certain temperature in the boilers to rapidly ramp up so wind and solar are are interesting technologies um, i don't have anything against them in in particular but i i don't view them as effective what i call deep decarbonizers they can sp- they can spare burning some fossil fuels right they work better in some environments than others but ultimately if you want to replace fossil fuels in the way that we did here in ontario where we completely phased coal out off of our grid um or you know what france did uh in the 80s and 90s Um, you know, that's, that's the way to get a durable, deep decarbonization, you know, can nuclear and renewables play well together? That's an interesting question because they produce very different power. I mean, nuclear produces reliable power. That's always on. Um, it, it satisfies what we call the baseload needs of our power grid, you know, the lowest need that's needed, we can fill that in completely with nuclear reliably around the clock, whereas wind and solar kind of jump on and off of the grid. Um, and so there's often a tension there. Because sometimes if you're running a large nuclear fleet, like we have in Ontario, um, for a while, we we installed a lot of wind and solar, and we allowed it first access to the grid, and we would actually shut down our nuclear plants to to allow that wind onto the grid it takes a couple of days to restart a nuclear plant. In the meantime, we'd burn a lot of gas, our is actually went up when we added a lot of wind to our grid. Um, and we had about $200 million a year in extra costs um, and, and fossil fuel use because we had to use gas to, to, back up, to back up that wind stuff. You know, when you talk about large plants, it's really interesting, um, you know, a large distributed um, wind and solar fleet often acts like one giant power plant. You know, you can have individual power, uh, solar panels in everybody's households, when a cloud comes over, they all go off at the exact same time. That puts a lot of stress on the grid and you need something that can back it up. So you know, my my opinions here are probably a bit of an outlier, and particularly in Scotland, where there's a lot of a lot of pride in the uh, in the wind fleet. Um, but again, the other thing I'd really point to is, you know, what's the what's the benefit to the community? Henderson B provided hundreds and hundreds of really high quality, permanent, intergenerational jobs. You know, unionized, good work for people. Um, there was a move to try and build um, some parts of the wind turbines in Scotland, not, not the fancy stuff, right, not the high engineering uh, stuff inside the, the gearboxes of the nacelles on these wind turbines, but just just rolling the steel for the towers. For three or four years, um, there, there was a, a steel mill that was rolling out the towers. Um, it got offshore to Vietnam quietly about four years in because you can be out competed there. Um, Nuclear tends to develop a local supply chain um, and a local workforce, and and it supports communities intergenerationally for, you know, 60, 70, 80 years, depending on how long you keep the plant around. Um, So there's some real stark choices to be made, and what I would urge people is just not to make those choices based off of aesthetic considerations or, or sort of, well, it's the wind, it's natural, that feels good. Set yourself some objective measures. You know so we want to have the lowest carbon grid possible we want to use this list we want to phase out fossil fuels as much as possible we want the best jobs you know in our area um we want to preserve the scenic beauty of you know the scottish highlands and coast you know set those as your objectives don't pick a technology but then see which ones match rather than sort of going on a, a kind of gut feeling
0: yeah oh definitely i think when it comes to you also mentioned phasing out there of fossil fuels um do you reckon how, how do you reckon nuclear should be applied in that in terms of a, in a perfect world? Where could it, it fit into that in terms of stopping the reliance? Because I think especially in the UK with with oil, um, and even you can see obviously in Ukraine as well, like it's become a political issue and it's um which is quite damaging as well. Like we have Campbell oil field up in up in the, the North Sea there, and there's um big campaigns saying, you know, not we can't drill that, can't drill that, but if you speak, you know, maybe in confidence to, uh, to an MP, there's, there's no political reason why they can't take that out. Like they have to, because mm-hmm. fossil fuels have got their hooks in is how can, you know, um, how can nuclear just sub into that and hopefully get us off fossil
1: fuels? Well, I mean, fossil fuels have their hooks in for a reason, right? It's, a lot of people will talk, especially in climate circles, they'll sort of compare fossil fuels to cigarettes. Um, fossil fuels we have to admit have provided a lot of i mean you're you're in a heated house right now right it might be quite cold where you were otherwise um, yeah. all of the goods that you have were shipped to you using fossil fuels um you know your car your your all of the single use medical supplies you know that are made out of plastic in your hospital fossil fuel uh, originated right um, it's a pretty, a pretty miraculous substance, which has unleashed enormous prosperity throughout the world. Unfortunately, it has this, this side effect, um, which is climate change, which we need to act on urgently. The thing is, we need to replace the services that fossil fuels supply with a source of energy that, that matches that. Um, and what are those services? It's um, energy density, it's it's reliability, um, and and nuclear does meet and match that. And that's why it has been able to replace fossil fuels one-to-one, as I mentioned uh, here in Ontario or, or in France, or really anywhere that where they're employed. And, and the key thing is to watch well, what happens when nuclear is taken off of the grid. And what you'll see is that it's replaced with fossil fuels. You can't replace that reliable baseload um, always on power with a power source that that comes and goes. I mean, there's something called the capacity factor, right? Which is the percentage of the potential energy an installation could produce that it actually makes over the year, right? And in Scotland, it's good, but wind is about forty percent. So sixty percent of that capacity is not there because the wind isn't always blowing. Despite you know having having almost been blown over a few times in Glasgow, <laughs> <laughs> you guys have lovely weather there. Um, so you know where can nuclear step in? Um, Particularly when it comes to electricity. Like it is unforgivable to be burning natural gas to make electricity, especially, especially baseload electricity, right? Um, you know, the other thing I didn't mention there, fossil fuels um and natural gas in particular are the basis of fertilizer, right? Um, 50% of the protein in you and in your body and my body and everybody's body on the planet comes from the Haber Bosch process, right? This is the way that we fix nitrogen um, into ammonia fertilizers um, and like it or not. That's that's the reason that there's 8 billion people on the planet right now. And if we didn't do that anymore, there would only be enough food for about 4 billion. So we're dependent on that. Hopefully we'll find some new way to to crack uh, nitrogen. But right now it's, it's natural gas. And the idea that we're burning food in a sense um, is really unforgivable. So nuclear, the low hanging fruit is to um, build a lot of nuclear to replace fossil fuels on the grid. Um, There's other areas where that are that are very hard to decarbonize so uh, steel making cement are very tricky. Um, Transportation, um, you know, we can electrify things the idea is to try and electrify as much as we can right and that again requires this doubling or tripling of our grid capacity, but it also means you need an ultra reliable grid, right? Because if we say, okay, we're done with fossil fuels, that means you don't have that redundancy and backup that we've been grown so used to. That means if the grid fails, the hospital goes offline, the ventilators stop, the dialysis machines stop. Um, It means that your water services and your lights go out, you know, the heat, the heat goes down to zero, right? So when we're talking about electrify everything, we need to do it with ultra reliable sources of electricity. And unfortunately, wind and solar are not that. We certainly can't have a, a an electrify everything grid that's based off of um, an unreliable source of electricity. So that, that's another reason why I'm I'm so bullish on nuclear.
0: Yeah, no, I think that reliability definitely would be would be key. I think what you mentioned uh, Canada is that quite like a market leader with um, in terms of of nuclear. I'm aware you mentioned France as well. Um, I was listening to. Your latest podcast as well, and Finland seem to be kind of taking a a turn for the towards nuclear with the Green Party, which might be kind of out of line with most Green parties in the in the West.
1: Actually, yeah, no, it's 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 very interesting. Um, you know, it, it, there's there's some very valid critiques of nuclear, right? Um, and particularly in the West, our most recent experiences have been that projects have been very slow to build, um, and have been really over budget. Um, And nuclear is hard, right? The construction expertise that goes into making a nuclear plant is extraordinary. The skilled trades people involved, uh, the meticulous attention that needs to be paid to detail to something as mundane as pouring some concrete and laying some rebar, not to mention all of the other reactor internals. I mean, this is an extraordinary human accomplishment um it's something that we've done and we've done quite well i mean it's like we've sent a, a man to the moon that was an incredible accomplishment that almost seems despite the you know incredible advances with spacex and things like that it just seems kind of out of reach to our current generations but you know in country after country around the world we've done it you know in ontario we built 20 reactors in 20 years france uh 54 reactors in 15 years um, and we've done it on budget and on time with a certain number of, of characteristics there, right? So you need to have a degree of government support that helps to de-risk the capital because a nuclear power plant doesn't put any el- electrons on the grid for three, four, five, six years while it's being built. And you're just accruing debt. If you're getting a high interest loan, like Hinkley point, um, two thirds of the final cost of that nuclear power plant are interest loans, uh, are interest payments to the, the lenders of that capital. Right, And that's because it was EDF that raised the funds, their private company. Um, It was considered a riskier investment. If the UK government got behind that, issued a AAA rated bond, you'd be getting that power plant built maybe at 2%, 3% interest rate and the cost of that power plant would be incredibly lower, right? So that's one vehicle. The other thing is that you need to have a industrialized competent society. We have de-industrialized um, and moved, um, you know, so much of our heavy industry capacity over to China and the Far East. Um, that was done out of sort of neoliberal economic considerations, a race to the bottom on uh, environmental and labor standards. You know, you can exploit people in the environment and, and get a cheaper product. Um, but that's left us really, really vulnerable here at home, and we're seeing that right now in terms of the Russian aggression in Ukraine. Our ability to to sanction is limited because we've become dependent for you know basic things like energy. Um, so you know what is needed is is government support, is you know a economy that's not just finance, insurance, real estate based. Um, but one that is a real economy, that's good for working people, that provides these intergenerational jobs, um, and that has the capacity to build big infrastructure projects. We're kind of coasting on the achievements of our our parents and our grandparents, right, who built so much of the vital infrastructure of our society, and it's starting to crumble. And we're at a stage where we need to jump in there and and do our bit. Um, And that bit really involves, you know, doubling or tripling the grid with ultra-reliable sources of electricity so that we can realistically take on climate change. It's not going to be easy right um but so much of what needs to happen is is not sort of fancy new tweaks and designs in terms of you know technology it's it's political change um and it's it's recreating those conditions of you know of our grandparents where you know we had heavy industry where we had a state that was willing to make strategic investments in, in vital infrastructure and so that's a lot of what i do in terms of my my political work
0: yeah no definitely i think mentioned a lot of good factors there. I think, do you reckon education's important as well with kind of, I feel since it's not talked about a lot here, is there a way to maybe like educate people on nuclear over in the UK or places that aren't so um,
1: keen on it? Listen, I mean, you're not alone in the UK uh, when you say people. Um, it's it's a really misunderstood uh technology and and i have a lot of compassion for the people that that don't like it you know when uh putin was gearing up for the uh the invasion of ukraine he was testing the readiness of uh their nuclear arsenal and that was a little reminder that we all live under the threat of you know the a madman pushing a button um could could really end human history as we know it. That's a terrifying thought. And it's very natural that people's worries about nuclear weapons would be uh misplaced onto nuclear energy, which, you know, my thesis is that, you know, this dual-use technology on one hand threatens the world and on the one hand really offers the salvation to the world when it comes to this question of energy transition and climate change. So, you know, education is a huge part of this. Um I, I do you I think that's going to happen in schools? Not so much. I mean, eventually it will, but it takes a long time for curriculums to change. Um, but fortunately, people are you know, very curious these days and into educating themselves. And, and there's a growing movement of of people like myself who have no ties to industry. It may seem very odd. And you might question my motivations. You know, I'm a physician. I'm a single father. Um, I'm, a, I'm a progressive activist. I spend a lot of my time on this. But I think that that's engendering a certain degree of social trust in terms of the messaging. People are going, well, who is this guy? What's his motivation? Oh, he seems concerned with climate. Oh, he he seems concerned with, you know, working class jobs. You know, he seems concerned with X, Y, and Z. So I think the message is is going to start to come through louder and louder. And really, you know, we're we're running an experiment here, right? We have on the one side countries like Germany, um, which have done their darndest. I mean, they've made enormous investments. The cost of electricity in, in Germany is amongst the highest in the entire um, EU block, um, and they're not they're not making much progress. You know. They're still one of the dirtier grids uh, in in the EU, uh, despite these historic investments. If, if you imagine what they've done, if they would put $550 billion into building nuclear plants, um, they'd have a completely decarbonized electricity grid and they'd be probably halfway there in terms of decarbonizing transportation. Um, is that politically possible in Germany? Well, no, but it's it's an interesting thing to think about. Um, we have to do more than than do what feels good we need to do what is is scientifically right and and has the evidence behind it and that might cause us uh to have to reevaluate some of our core core assumptions
0: yeah Now germany's an interesting one as well because i think you know obviously everyone's trying to decarbonize as fast as they can and with stuff maybe like you know like the nord s2 been built as well what what do you think that spells for the future of of say like phasing out fossil fuels and and nuclear is that a thorny issue or are you referring to Nord Stream too? Is that what you said? Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. I mean, so you know, it's it's interesting, right? The the one of the architects of the German nuclear phase out, uh, Gerhard Schroeder, became uh, you know one of the the people on the board at Gazprom, um, and of the Nord Stream pipeline. There's there's some really fishy politics going on here. Um, you know, this was an attempt for Russia to bypass uh, its pipelines going through uh, its its rivals and its ex satellite states and Ukraine and Poland, for instance, um, to get Europe completely hooked on gas. And the rationale to Germany was interesting. Well, we we committed uh war crimes and atrocities in uh in russia during the world war ii so this is buying their gas is kind of our way of, of paying some reparations to them i mean these are preposterous and we're seeing the ways in which this is just blowing up in their faces as they literally bankroll the slaughter that's happening in ukraine right now So Germany and Nord Stream are an interesting, an interesting question. Um, I was actually at, at COP26. I met with the German spokesperson uh, for their delegation and was able to really ask them about this, you know, um, what's the backup plan for when the wind and solar are not, not performing. Um, And he was very clear with me that, um, you know, coal was on the agenda. They were going to try and speed it up, but they certainly weren't going to keep their nuclear around to, to make that happen any quicker now, obviously. Obviously, this uh, Russian uh, aggression in Ukraine, uh, Germany's got itself in quite a pickle. Um, you know, the, sorry, is my internet crashing again? Uh it says it's low. I think it's kind of so- sorted out of right there. Oh, boy. The Germans just... don't want, the Germans don't want me talking about <laughs> your, uh...
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got hackers on. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the architects of the nuclear phase out in Germany, including uh, former Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder, uh, have gone on to work in Russian gas companies like Gazprom Nord Stream to uh was version a geopolitical play uh by the, the Russians to bypass um their former satellite states, of which they have somewhat antagonistic relations, um Ukraine and Poland, um, and to get Europe hooked on on uh on its Russian gas. Um, you know, the justifications are are very interesting. Um, I've heard two Germans. One is um, that if their economies are, are tied in very closely, uh, the Russians and the Germans, there's less likely to have a war in the future. Um, and the second was that, that you know R- R- Germany had done some horrible things um, in Russia in during World War II, and that buying gas was kind of a way of paying reparations. Um, well, we're we're seeing how that's that's spinning off. Um, and despite the unprecedented cooperation of the West to sanction Russia, uh, I mean the pipeline is there. It's fully constructed. It's actually full of gas. They could just turn a valve at any moment. Um, you know, luckily this was a milder winter in, uh, in the EU, um, and the, 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 there's still a little bit of gas left in the reserves. Um, but there's no realistic, um, opportunity to, to really hit Russia where it hurts, um, and shut down this war by, by turning off the gas valves because of the choices that were made, um, to, to phase out nuclear, you know, they've, they've made the decisions they've made, but that, that would not have been impacted in the same way and would have given them a lot more, uh, geopolitical room to maneuver.
0: Yeah. Perfect um got through that in the end um but yeah i think that's kind of all touched on all the bases i think on nuclear i was i was after chris so um yeah thanks so much for for being no no
1: trouble no trouble
0: yeah Um, what have you got on for the rest of the the week or anything else coming up exciting
1: oh i i yeah yeah i'm uh just came out of a media interview before this and then i'm going into another one in another half hour or so um but things are busy in canada we have a um a green bond that was just issued that excludes a new Um So I'm uh, involved in a bunch of campaigning to try and reverse that, uh, which is interesting, taking up a lot of time, but I, I meet some very fascinating people, uh, you know, coming to cop, for instance, meeting yourself. Yeah. It's, uh, it's been a great journey. So yeah, good luck. Good luck yeah. with, with everything. I'm a little underslept and a little rambly there. I wish I could have answered your questions in a, a bit of a tighter way. Um, oh, and no, I definitely have some, some material did. I'm working on. Uh, I've got this S yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's a really vital key question. Again, what I was saying there in terms of um, writing out what the goals are, and then um, really trying to impartially look at well, what are the characteristics of the uh, the technological options that we have? Um, And what's what's the evidence, let's look at what actually exists, not sort of, there's a lot of sort of pie in the sky, right? Like, oh, there's this battery, and it's going to do this, that and the other. Um, Well, you have the richest country. In Europe, one of the richest in the world that is the furthest advanced on this, and their plan is to back things up with gas. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. and any kind of net zero framework, it's not like some battery is going to come to the rescue and mirac- miraculously balance out the uh, intermittency of wind and solar. So, yeah. Anyway. No,
0: de- de- definitely not, man. But yeah, um thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And um, yeah, I'll be, be in touch, man, and hope everything goes well with uh, reversing the bond. But
1: yeah, we we'll chat soon. Okay. Cheers. Bye for now.
0: See you, Chris. Bye-bye. So that was my chat with Dr. Chris Kiefer. Hope he's enjoyed it. Hope he's all all learned something. I know I certainly did from chatting to him. Um, What I kind of really like about Chris is not only is he only clued up in this topic, but, you know, he's really articulate in in the way he explains things, which, um, you know, I'm a serial serial rambler, serial mumbler, so when anyone can get across a point, I kind of... Clear, concise way, um, you know. I think under respect for that. Um, and if you want to, if you want to check out any any further work on nuclear, then yeah, go check out his podcast Decouple. He does a lot of amazing work over there. Apart from that, you know, just um, stay tuned with Rising Clay. You know, at Rising Clyde, uh, we're on Instagram, we're on TikTok. Uh, no funny dances, though, sadly, but you know, a lot of the good content. Uh, we're also on Twitter. And for articles, please visit uh, www.risingclay.uk. You know, we're still um, we're still kinda getting off the ground in terms of in terms of support and where we want to be, so so any any support from from you guys if you enjoy enjoy the work we're doing would be massively appreciated. So yeah, so apart from that, thanks for tuning in and yeah, you know where to get us at Rising Clyde. Thank you.